Good morning. Not content with the pandemic, 2021 decided to finish with a storm. What's heading our way? A storm barra is forming at the moment in the middle of the Atlantic. It's undergoing what we call explosive cyclogenesis, which means its pressure is falling by... uh, The definition of that is 24 hectopascals in 24 hours, but this is actually on the double 50 hectopascals in 24 hours, which the Americans call a weather bomb. You know, everywhere there's going to be some severe weather for at least a couple of hours. Isn't it? I mean, just looking at the... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's coming straight in. Complete with its own scary ringtone. And it blew hard and we took a bit of a battering. I'm essentially crouched down on the South Mall in a doorway because the wind is gusting quite strongly here. Cork City Council activated its severe weather plan. The crisis management team had met. And coming up to 7am, I observed staff from the Imperial Hotel. They were scrambling to erect a flood barrier, uh, unsure at that stage if the water would cross the South Mall and enter the building. Thankfully, it didn't. Harold Kingston, their IFA Munster Regional Chairman. And Harold has a coastal farm in Cork, McSharry. That's too famous. West Cork rowers said in, in, in the past we're used to a bit of wind in West Cork. <laughs> yeah. um, power has jumped here in, in the last few minutes, but that's it, it's, uh, it, it's still going. We're reasonably well prepared for this, but that it, it, it is literally a case. You know, when, if, if you see something going, you, you stand back and wave it goodbye because there's no point in, in trying to repair anything during the storm. It's quite calm here in Belmullish at the minute. and We did have serious heavy rain earlier on in the morning. That would have flooded through my kitchen door and into my kitchen. I was greeted by a few inches of water. Oh, no. um, all my towels are being used for water collection. Yeah, and especially when you're not expecting you're going for breakfast and you suddenly end up with wet feet. <laughs> <laughs> wet feet and a bowl of cornflakes. Good morning, Claire from Dunlira Harbour here uh, in Dublin. It seems to be revving up here once again after appearing to stop for a mid-morning cup of tea and a biscuit. If I pivot towards my left to look up towards Dublin, in towards Dublin Bay, up towards the city in the north side, the sun is actually out at the moment. Indeed, somebody in government buildings just told me they looked out the window and saw a rainbow there in the capital. Firefighters also tweet, tweeted a picture uh, of a remarkable rescue last night. Of uh, They rescued somebody who took shelter on a crane in the city centre late last night as well. As you can hear Storm Barra, I must have tempted fate because he's really picked up since I said he, uh, he was having a break. Rachel, what happened this morning? Where were you? Um, so I was en route to work and I was in Starbucks in Bray and all of a sudden we saw a bobble. A bubble? A bobble. A bobble? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> how, how big was the bauble? Hey, if it was beside me, um, it would probably have been up to like above my knee anyway. The alliteration possibilities are endless with the baubles behaving badly. <laughs> Sean, you're boiling an owl. You're right out there uh, nearly in the Atlantic Ocean. Next parish America, they say, and it's, it's rough enough here. I've jumped into the car for a bit of shelter. Yeah. And it's like sitting on top of an elephant. The car is rocking <laughs> side to side and the rain, the rain is lashing the windows here. Evan and Lahinch text the programme to say the weather is melogen and what else would it be in County Clare uh, but power outages up and down the country as well 49,000 homes and businesses without power as we speak 
Fergal, it sounds like it was, was one of the worst areas hit, certainly early on in this red weather uh, emergency. Tell us more about West Cork. Yeah, we're still on red alert here and the rain hasn't really been a problem. There'd be very heavy showers, but they're passing. It's the wind. It would literally knock you over. You can barely open the, the car door. You can't walk against it. Nearby here, the Fastnet Lighthouse, they recorded a gust of 160 kilometres an hour, 85 knots earlier today. People seem to have heeded the warnings for the most part and stayed at home. Let's see how it goes for them later on. And our evening. thoughts with all those council workers and everyone else out there in the roads trying to, to make them and keep them safe uh, t- t- today. They're uh, doing a great job so far, it seems. Repair work and clean-up operations have been continuing across the country as Storm Barra draws to an end. Monday, 6th of December, 100 years since the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Dr Dara Gannon of UCD has been tracing the negotiations in real time over the past few weeks for the History Show and he joined Miles again in studio for this crucial date. So describe what went on during that 24-hour period. These are the most difficult period of the negotiations because the uh, Irish plenipotentiaries had left Dublin confused, uh, unsure as to where their colleagues' loyalties ultimately lay. And I think Griffith and Collins finally agreed at this stage that they were on their own. De Valera ostensibly had abandoned the the position that they had presented, that this was the final uh, agreement uh, according to the British. And so they knew that they would have to negotiate the final stages of the treaty on their own. And when they returned to London on the 4th and 5th of December of 1921, again, they met a recalcitrant British who argued that they had presented in good faith that these were the best terms the British could offer. Don't forget, these negotiations dating back to July had been going on for almost six months. The Treaty of Versailles in early 1919 had not taken this long and the British have other responsibilities, political and otherwise, at this time. And so there is a real urgency and and sense that this is the moment by which peace can finally be agreed between these two nations. And to add to the pressure, Arthur Griffith had made a promise. Collins and Griffith met with David Lloyd George and the rest of the uh, British team on the afternoon of the 5th. And as in pure dramatic fashion, David Lloyd George presents from his trousers from one month earlier the written promise written by Thomas Jones, which gave effect to Arthur Griffith's verbal promise that he would not break on the issue of Ulster. And this, of course, undermined the entire strategic position of the Irish negotiating team and it was unknown to Collins and Barton who were in the room at the time. And Griffith promised on that date, on the 5th of December 1921, that he would honour that promise. And this left, of course, the rest of the plenipotentiaries with you know, a fait accompli. We either support Griffith or we go home. And to add a coup de grace, David Lloyd George, in you know, purely dramatic fashion, stated that he had two letters to be sent one to James Craig in Ulster stating that an agreement had been signed and another stating that it was war with our nationalist Ireland and war within three days. Which was he to send? And he gave them until 10pm that night to agree. So what happens then? So they return to Hans Place, but according to the testimonies of those who are present, Colin stated in the taxi on the way home with a heavy heart that he was going to sign the treaty. And when they returned to Hans Place, the rest of the, the plenipotentiaries uh, bickered and argued desperately over whether they should assign. Now, the interesting fact here is that Griffith had apparently agreed to De Valera on the 3rd of December that he would phone 
or he would communicate with Dublin with the final terms of the treaty before signing. But this apparently was not uh, thought about on the evening in question. Such were the pressures and such was the extremity of the position as presented by Lloyd George. And under great duress, uh, we have George Gavin Duffy and Robert Barton finally conceding that they would also sign the treaty of agreement. And so after midnight, now into the 6th of December 1921, we have the plenipotentiaries entering into their cars, leaving the foggy place of Hans Place, which of course was um, covered by British Secret Service agents, and arriving at 10 Downing Street. And just after 2am on the morning of the 6th of December 1921, the Articles of Agreement, the Anglo-Irish Treaty, was signed between the Irish and British sides. And although the delegation was led by Arthur Griffith, it is Michael Collins that popular imagination has put front and centre. However, on Bowman on Sunday, Collins' reluctance to travel to London was recalled by Emmett Dalton, who had accompanied him on the journey. He spoke to me on the boat. We were on the boat together. We walked the deck a bit because he was, Collins was a man who couldn't sit still anyhow, you know. And he talked. He was, as he always was, I felt very generous in his about the difficulties that existed and how he hoped something might be battled out of it. But he was very annoyed at the, pro- the fact that he had to go. He was most reluctant to have been one of the, the representatives and it was only under the strongest pressure, I think, that he agreed to go. So he told me, anyhow, that he felt it was not his place was at home. And as he said, they had persuaded him to go because they said that the British realised or claimed that he was the motive active force behind the fighting and uh, that they were more interested in talking to the fighting people than the politicians. That is why I feel that, uh, in fact, I know he was reluctant, but he, like everything else he did for his country, did it with full heart. And of course, Eamon de Valera had stayed in Dublin, a decision that would prove controversial. Later on Monday, Clare put this to Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD, Jermot Ferreter. Had he been in London, would the outcome have been any different? It could have been. Um, but you could argue that it was unlikely. He had been over in London in July. He had met David Lloyd George one-on-one before the formal negotiations began in October. He knew what was an offer. He knew the limitations. What he was trying to do was ride two horses. I mean, he was trying to be involved in negotiations, but he remained in Dublin. And there was an arrogance to that, you could argue. He was also still trying to work out how he could persuade the more hardline to accept the idea of a compromise, something that was less Mm. uh, than the Republic. But ultimately, de Valera would not have been able to achieve uh, a Republic. And I don't think he would have given more attention uh, to the Ulster question either, because even when he offered his alternative to the treaty, the so-called document number two, um, he wasn't suggesting anything radically different in relation to the Ulster question. So that issue would have remained... Unresolved. But you could argue that as a more experienced politician and one who was so fastidious with words and phrases that he would have been much more careful than the other negotiators about the way particular clauses of the treaty were phrased and perhaps not given as many hostages to fortune. Or perhaps he knew there was going, he, there was going to have to be a compromise. He knew that, he could see it coming and so it suited him to be in Ireland that's and away very, from it. That's a very valid argument and it's an argument that has been made and you can see that anger coming out during the treaty debates as well when Arthur Griffith and Collins mm-hmm. in particular challenge him because he sent them over with plenipotentiary powers. He sent them over to do their utmost for Ireland which they were able to say during the treaty debates they had done. 
but what of the reaction when the delegation returned to Ireland with the agreement? Back to the History Show and Dr Dara Gannon. Did it come as a huge surprise to the Dublin Cabinet? Officially it did, and de Valera responded in kind, almost threatening to arrest those who had agreed to sign the agreement. But ultimately, it was, it was known only days prior that these were the final terms presented by the British. And so therefore, de Valera, I think it's fair to say, saw himself as perhaps being, along with King George V, the final arbiter in any negotiation. And his issue was not that the treaty had been signed, but that it had not been signed by him. And on Morning Ireland, John S. Doyle stepped back 100 years for what it says in the papers. Dark clouds of war scattered, says the headline in the Freeman's Journal, over a report that an agreement was reached at the peace conference in London early this morning. Most papers report from 10 Downing Street that when the Sinn Féin delegates were stepping into their automobile to depart at 2.15 this morning, Mr Michael Collins was asked for the news. Not a word, he said. Are you coming back, he was asked. I can't say, he replied. Lord Birkenhead, one of the British negotiators quoted in The Independent, described the decision of the British Cabinet as the most vital for 240 years and said, never can the old quarrel be the same. And in what the paper calls a remarkable tribute to the Irish delegates, he said... I am certain that they will go back to Ireland taking their lives in their hands to fight their battle as confidently as I and my colleagues go in to battle on this side. The Belfast newsletter is not impressed at this morning's developments. The editorial writer says that the government has dragged the honour of Great Britain in the mire, gaining nothing but the contempt of its enemies while losing the confidence of its friends. The text of the treaty is remarkably carried in full in the New York Times, right across the front page. Irish free state created, Ulster cannot stop it, say two headlines. The Independent has a poem to mark the signing of the treaty. By HNR, it starts with the lines, Hail freedom, hail the dawn of liberty, from seven long centuries of woe and war, our land once more is ours to make The headlines marking the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, December 6th, 1921. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Hotelier John Brennan has written a book. It's called My Name is John. That's J-H-O-N. Because school and John, not exactly a good match. Go into the seat for me in a second. You're in the uniform and the teacher is talking away. What's happening in your head? Nothing. I just went to school every. I never, I never minded going to school. I never laid in the bed in the morning thinking, "Oh God, I have to get out of bed and go to school." No way, I hate this. Never, Mum never had to drag me out the front door. I always ran up the road, and that may be because I'm the youngest of five, and there's eight years between me and the next. So the only children I met was when I went to school. So I was delighted to go to school, but when I went in, it was blank. Yeah. And the the regime of teaching just didn't suit the brain, and it just didn't um, resonate with me at all. And I'd look at books, and I'd. They'd, at that time, you'd be asked to read a paragraph of a, um, a book and mm. the teacher would call you and I'd be there dreading that they'd be asked to do it because I wouldn't get past the first word. And I just couldn't do it. I just didn't. I just, the brain just wasn't wired for it. Did the window get a lot of attention from you? No, the motorbike out? magazines. The, yeah. the, the motorbike magazines were, were, your, were your go-to. I went to school every day with a bag that was a foot thick and it was 11 inches of motorbike magazines and one inch of school books. Ooh, that's a telling ratio. 
But as John would later learn, he had dyslexia. Such a stupid name, isn't it? Well, it's for, it is a daft name. It's a, it's a, yeah. I'm so glad you point yeah. this out because it's, 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 it's so complicated. It's it so hard to spell. and an X. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that. You think they call it something? Luckily, John had a teacher called Finbar O'Driscoll who spotted something amiss and more importantly, he cared. Finbar came from West Cork and came to Dublin. I think it was his first um, job as a teacher after coming out of college. And he took a shining to me for some reason and he took an interest in me. Mm. And it was funny because I was in West Cork during the summer and I met another colleague who was in school, which was well, Corey. And he said to me, he said, Finbar O'Driscoll cared. And that's the most important word because he didn't teach the curriculum. He taught the child and he saw issues with some of us in the class and he knew they needed help. And he went outside the boundaries of the nine to four, whatever the case would be, nine to five, um, and looked after us. And only for that, I wouldn't be able to read or write today. And it was Finbar who pushed John's mother to get help. They went to a specialist. Dyslexia back in the late 70s wasn't known at all. And I thought it was great. It was a lovely, exotic name. God, I was delighted I had something so good (laughs) going for me. My mother jumped out the door when she heard. (laughs) But he, he... He'd come across it many times before. He yeah. knew the tools to play with to give me. What age were you at this point? Um, seven, I Seven. Think. And you're looking at this man and he gives you a sheet of paper and he says, yeah. read that word. Now, the word you're about to say is, this knocked yeah. me out because yeah. it was, it, it really, for me, as somebody who's not dyslexic, it doesn't, uh, can, you're trying to get into the mind yes. of somebody who is, this summed it up. So he hands you the sheet. Yeah. There's one word on it. Read this. What was the word? Bed. And I couldn't get it. And he explained it to me and he said, listen, it's a B. He said, you have a he- what's a bed? He said, you have a headboard, you have a flat bit which you lie on. And he says, you have a kicker at the end. He was an American man, they call it a kicker at yeah. the end of the bed. And he said, what's that? He said, start with a B, a bed. And so a B, 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 B. OK, and I couldn't get anything more. And then he explained to me, Ed, and then I got the ED and then it looks like a bed. And that just instantly like that, I got it. But the, what he did as well, which you did the minute I came into this studio today, you lowered your seat to be at the same level as I am. <laughs> you didn't even know you were doing it. I, I, I was wondering you had just spotted it, but go on anyway. Yeah, yeah. So and he did that, did he, with no, his chair? No, the exact same chair on his side yeah. as on this side. And the minute I walked in, I looked at the desk and I said, mm, we're equal. And this diagnosis led John to getting special help in the summer and meeting other kids in the same boat. A life-changing experience. And for Brennan, our emphasis on academia to the exclusion of all else is very limiting. And if you leave school, as as I did, at 15 and went working on a vegetable truck, nothing wrong with it, best education you can get. I think if you can sell flowers at the top of Grafton Street, it's the best education (laughs) you can get. That's a skill. And it it is a career. And there's fantastic people right around the world who've gone to the very top of various different sectors um, who left school early and got on with it by learning on the street. And I don't think there's enough credit given to that um, in today's world. And that was the other reason for writing the book. Okay. John Brennan with Ryan. And on Thursday's Liveline, a story of prejudice, emigration and homelessness, but also a remarkable story of resilience and courage. Born in Bessborough, mother and baby home, but raised by her family, at the age of 14, Lucia Fitzgerald ran away. What uh, prompted me to run away was uh, that um, I thought uh, that my parents were my parents and they weren't, they were my grandparents. Ah. So I'd been lied to all those years and I got a terrible shock when I found uh, my birth certificate in a drawer uh, that I wasn't supposed to be nosy and in. Wow. And um, so I got an awful shock. Yeah. 
and um, I decided uh, to, um, well, that wasn't the decision that made me actually run away. It was mm-hmm. that my gran- I confronted my grandmother with it. And then she started talking to me about a letter that had been found in my school bag, all the rest of it, and that, um, that I probably will have to go into an institution because uh, um, I'm, I'm not normal. I didn't know what she was talking about, but she was, what she was really talking about was the fact that I was gay, and I didn't know I was gay at the time, if you understand me. Of course, yeah. So, you know, I thought to myself, rather than... Because I knew what those places were like because some kids I went to school with ended up in them. Mm-hmm. We'd never seen them again. And that was one of the... Just one of the reasons. So there was about three or four different okay. reasons. She took some money and got the boat to England, ending up in Manchester. And I met loads of other Irish kids on the streets for very similar reasons. And we all kind of hung out together and stuck okay. together. And we used to all go up to the local um, uh, uh, gay pub of the night and we'd sit outside watching them all going in and out because we felt safe sat there, you know. Yeah. And uh, we, we, um, we, we just kept ourselves well and clean and um, got ourselves little uh, washing up jobs in the day. And that's how we survived and, and, and mm-hmm. went into the local uh, toilets to wash our clothes and stuff like that. And we just kept ourselves going all the time because one thing that uh, kept me going was that I thought, I'm not going to be sent back to Ireland in a coffin. Are you with me? I am not going to be. And that was what drove me. Don't go back because then, you see, I would have turned out the the person that uh, I was being predicted to be, which was this awful person that was now a lesbian and and that they uh, took in. But one night she took a bike and came to the attention of the authorities. And because she was underage, she was given a social worker. Anyway, they had sent a social worker. The social worker found out I was gay. I told her I was gay. I said, and yeah. I don't want to go back to Ireland. I don't want to do this. She said, "This, you're you're obviously upset uh, because you're, and this is what's mm-hmm. all the problems. And I said, there isn't a problem. And she said, well, you were arrested. And I said, I was only, you know, oh, jumped on a yeah. didn't do anything wrong. When I went to court, there was 47 charges against me. I didn't know what was going on. Oh, my God. The next minute, I was sat in front of a psychiatrist Okay. And told that um, she she recommended that I go and see a psychiatrist. The one thing wrong with me, I was only a child, ignorant of that. <gasps> and um, they uh, basically um, the psychiatrist was saying to me that um, I believe you're you're a lesbian. I didn't. I didn't know that was the first time I'd ever heard the word lesbian. I said, what's a, what's a lesbian? What okay. is it? Because we were all called queers in them days. Oh, God, yeah. And yeah. anyway, to cut another long story short, yeah. he wanted to send me for lobotomy. Oh, I ran out. A lobotomy. Of, yep in the lobotomy and I just looked at the fe- I looked at this, this fella and I said what do you mean you're going to um, do an operation on my brain he said it'll cure you he said because he said all your problems he said is down to the fact that you're a lesbian I said oh I don't think so I said all my problems I said is around the fact that I'm homeless and I'm trying to struggle yeah, you with yeah. me and I didn't steal a bicycle and you're so young yep I was sitting in front of this massive uh, mahogany table and I was, I'm only four, four foot eleven. Okay. And I, so I pushed back the chair I was on. It had wheels. And I put my two feet up on the edge of the table, a big mahogany one, and I pressed it into the wall and him with it. And I ran like... Good woman. ...up the corridors and everywhere. And I, it was that massive, the hospital. I was having terrible trouble trying to find my way okay, out. Okay, okay. Anyway, I, I eventually ran out of it. But ever resourceful, Lucia survived. She found a series of odd jobs and met a like-minded community. And it just went on from there. So I was I was on the run then for, for, for a good while, a couple of months anyway, maybe longer. So it got me to have a little job in the gay uh, pub. And you're brilliant, you're wash, brilliant. Just washing dishes and things. Yeah. 
and everyone was looked after each other them so I was kind of on the way up and starting to feel safe you know in in, in the gay village that we have here in Manchester and it was, the police finally found me and it was two policemen came looking for me Okay. But what is it that you've done? And I said to him, I'm a lesbian. I said, and that's what's wrong. I said, and you know what they said? They said, is your name Lucia Fitzgerald? And I said, yes. They said, well, thank you very much. He's obviously not living here. And off they went. They, so, they must have been sympathetic. So they pretended not to hear your name. They pretended not Brilliant. to hear your name. And I never heard another word after that. Oh, what kindness. But it was a tough life. And it was a chance conversation overheard in a club one night that would transform her life. Joe, I was at a very low ebb at the time and I okay. was seriously thinking of uh, of committing suicide because okay. I was tired, I missed my family, I missed home and everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? As much yeah. I suffered there, I, I still missed them all and missed the culture. And um, I was just really um, lonely in myself, so to speak. And I was thinking the cruelty that I see uh, uh, towards gay people back in those days was just awful. The lads could be arrested. We'd never see yeah. them again. They used to beat the hell out of the kids coming out of the pubs. And I thought, I can't live like this. So I seriously thought about it. And I was sitting in a club one night, just up on a stool, mm. and I overheard three people uh, talking at a table, three women, about the fact that it was horrible what was happening to gay people. Mm. They were talking about starting this thing called GLF, and I, I thought what they were saying was actually quite good. So I said, do you mind if I join your conversation? OK, well done. And I sat down at the table and I said, what's GLF? And they said, Gay Liberation Front. And I said, what does that mean? And they were talking about the government. I said, I know nothing about the government. Yeah. They were going on about MPs. And I said, what's an MP? I didn't know what an MP was. Okay. Oh, I said, I'm really interested. I said, could I join your little group? And they said, yes. And that's when my whole life turned around at the, the idea that we could actually change everything. Incredible. And just listen to what she has achieved in her life. And what did you do in the Gay Liberation Front in Manchester in the early 60s? Well, what we did in the... We had loads of meetings. They were called consciousness-raising meetings, meaning look at ourselves and how other people become gay and are gay and how the system is treating us and whether it's legal or not legal, is it bullying or is what the hell is it? And then we started, get, because I started becoming more and more political with this group of women. Yeah. And, um, and that's when, when um, I became uh, an activist. Yeah. And the more I learned about society, the angrier I got and how unfair I thought society in general was to people. And um, I thought, you know, this is basically what I want to do. And so uh, we created uh, the second women's aid in Manchester. We created the first women's uh, print and press ever uh, ever in Manchester. And we created a women's mm-hmm. centre where women with children could come late at night if they were having problems with a, a husband that was irate or, or battering them and stuff like that. Yeah, and yeah. On and on and on. And I've never stopped. And I, everything I looked at, I thought, right, we could do with this, we could do with that. Are you with me? And I never stopped. Incredible woman that was Lucia Fitzgerald with Joe on Liveline. And that brings us in a roundabout way to Michael Harding, who joined Brendan to contemplate life, beauty, belief and vulnerability. And Michael spoke to Brendan about being ill and coming to terms with those physical knocks, as difficult as it might be. Michael, you keep coming back to alluding that you had a hard 
year there with between illness and obviously fear with it. I know you're halfway through a new book now and you're kind of thinking about getting older and it and everything. Is it like it sounds like it's it's harder getting older for you and you keep getting crocked with these illnesses and operations and everything? I I think that ten years ago when I got a, a serious illness, it, it led to depression because I think I wasn't prepared for being ill. I thought I was going to be perfect and healthy all my life. Mm. In the past 10 years, it's like what somebody described, you're like an old cartoon in the car. There's pieces of you falling off. And eventually you kind of accept that, well, that's what happens when you get older. Bits fall off. But it's not really something to worry about. Yeah. Because now I accept that I am vulnerable. I accept that, you know, being 68 years of age, you know, there's nowhere else to go but further up the road. Yeah. Right? So it, it kind of is probably good for me that I've had a number of illnesses and it has certainly given me a deeper sense of faith. And it, I don't mean faith in just in Christian terms. I mean it in human terms. There's something utterly beautiful about being human and it's happening in everybody, no matter what the religion and no religion. It is absolutely beautiful that we're here. There's something consciousness emerging in us and it's an amazing journey, even despite all the darkness. And that's what you need to hold on to. Welcome back. And just like that, it's back. And drive times, John Cook went looking for his Carrie's Charlotte's Mirandas and maybe even Samantha's. Sex and Louder. City. Louder. <laughs> Love it, yes. Oh, the, the show. Yeah. Okay, no, I thought he was like, I thought he was asking like that. Exactly. I'm not asking you any personal questions about your own life. I loved it because I love Sarah Jessica Parker. I love the way she dresses, the fashion and the comedy. And Sex and City was huge for us when we were younger. Did you watch it ever? No? No, not for years. <laughs> not for years, he says. You did watch it then, years obviously. Ago, yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> Which parts did you enjoy most? The sex part. <laughs> Oh, and later on Arena, a review with Jen Gannon. Just how have they dragged the stilettoed lovelies up Fifth Avenue kicking and screaming and into 2021, especially since the four are now three? I, I suppose the, the elephant in the room, let's yes. get, or the elephant not in the not room in, in the this room. case, oh. really. Um, no, no Samantha. Samantha. 
and yeah. and that's dispensed with within the first two minutes, so it's not a spoiler. And she's not dead, don't worry, but she's living in London, living her right, best I'll life. T- anyway, onwards we taught her. We lived in a different world 20 years ago when maybe we could kind of laugh at, the, you know, the shoes and the mm. handbags and all, all of the rest of it. These are three women in their 50s now. Um, how, how, what kind of women are they? Well, it's a much, the series is a much stronger cocktail than your old favourite. It's a more sombre tone and that might be a bit off-putting for people. It still has the glamour. It still looks beautiful as ever and as luxurious as ever. But it has to strike a different tone in a way because they're not in their 30s anymore. There was a lot of in the city that was very hopeful very optimistic and you know you could just turn a corner and, and, and something else would happen that would you know make your life change your life completely now because they're in their 50s and they're in, settled in relationships it's a very different dynamic but you do have them trying to at least strike out on their own and you, you see there's the more p- engagement with the current political environment that there never was previously mm. in Sex and the City and what um, about the relationships that they're in I mean I, I think when we got to the end of the series there was a lot of complaint too about the let's wrap it all up happily ever after there they are they're all sorted now in relationships Mm. what about the relationships that they were in do we get into those we do and I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil it on people Uh, but I guess some have survived and some haven't exactly but I mean what I want from it is more of that and I think uh, what happens is a, a lot of the two episodes although it is extremely comforting and it's beautiful to see these women back in these characters that you're so fond of. There's a lot of explaining to do and as I said, a lot of atonement. And until that is over, then you won't get into the, the nuts and bolts and the meat of the show. Okay, you're kind of saying we've only had two episodes. Are, are you are you hopeful? Are you disappointed? Can it survive without Samantha? I'm cautiously, cautiously hopeful. Cautiously optimistic like the women of the show. I mean, I think it can be clunky at times, but as I said, it's extremely comforting. Mm. Like, And you do love seeing these women again on screen and and that's the best part of it. Oh, and maybe they'll coax Samantha back by stealth. We shall see. And also on Arena, this review of Steven Spielberg's West Side Story from reviewer Michael Pope who shocked us all with this revelation. Michael, you came to this with... I would say if Sif said the lowest of low <laughs> expectations. <laughs> I was cantankerous, cranky, whatever you want to call it. Now, mm. I, I'm glad you didn't ask me that question yeah. uh, that you asked Gemma there because I've never seen the original and I kind of, mm. I was conflicted about that after I've seen this uh, because I felt like, should I do it for my research? But I didn't. Mm. I, I kind of said to myself, I wanted to review this on it, on, its, on its own terms. Yeah, but um, I'm kind of, to know me is to know my gentle loathing for all things musical. That goes for yeah. them all, Oklahoma, Greece, any, a lot. Um, so I'm totally surprised that this worked me over like a prize fighter. It's a belter of a movie. Now, it is obviously the most successful commercial director in history. He's he, yeah. he, he do this kind of thing in his sleep, you know, and it's it's impeccably staged, you know, he's got millions yeah, of dollars. And then to be fair, the 1957 yeah, stage I, I, show I, and the 1961 film did kind of okay as well. And this is, this is as he's at pains to say, an adaptation of the musical and not, yes, not Robert Wise's 1961 film. But I can't really speak to that because I, this is mm. my first experience of of West Side Story. And my God, it's down from everything down to the visuals by Janusz Kaminski to the to the camera work. And it's not just it's all, it's not all kinetic and, and editing. There is he lets it breed, you know, because, you know, you get to see the choreography and these massive stagings in really nice kind of expansive wide right. shots you get to enjoy it all as well as having kind of that modern edge that Gemma mentioned with you know the casting and the kind of the themes of gentrification and racism and all that so it blew me away it really did Ooh that sounds promising but how many stars here's fellow reviewer Gemma Cray Four stars very Four enjoyable. stars very yeah. enjoyable Ooh that's good Now Michael Strong four I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go see this again tomorrow 
you going to see this again yes, tomorrow? Yes, I'm going to see it again the tomorrow. the 1961 film. I now? will get there eventually, but uh, I, I'm, I'm really am looking forward to seeing this again. Oh, that is a high star count. That was West Side Story, reviewed on Arena. Now, hands up if you are a stickler for the best before date, never mind the use buys. If so, you're on Team Claire. However, if you're more, ah, we'll get another day out of that, nothing a good scrape away won't cure, you are most likely eating with chefs Holly Dalton and Jess Murphy. And they're part of a food cloud initiative, All Taste Zero Waste, which aims to reduce the 1.27 million tonnes of food we throw out every year. I need to know where you both stand and Holly you start uh, with this one for me on mould on food Mm. Okay maybe this is like a bit controversial but this is what I heard I don't know if science is going to back me up here but basically (laughs) if a food is kind of mostly liquid based right for example say like cottage cheese or if you have like a cordial or something in the fridge and there's mould on top it's like okay that's gone that's bad because basically mould like travels easier through liquid now look I'm not a scientist. This is just what I heard. But if it's, I feel like we're talking about cheese a lot, but it's definitely relevant. If it's hard, right, like a loaf of bread, if you have like a big loaf of bread and it's like unsliced and there's a bit of mold on the end, just cut that off. You know, it's fine. It's not going to travel as easy through like a solid thing. Same with hard cheeses. Just cut that off. It's totally fine. I think my, my parents are probably like screaming listening to this because yeah. for them, they I'm screaming like, a little bit on the you're, inside. You're, you're crazy. But look, I do it all the time. I've never gotten sick. It tastes the same. Like, don't, I, I just think it's a sin to throw out like a big kilo thing of cheddar because it's like a tiny bit of mold. Yeah, on one just of the scrape corners. it off, cut it off. I kind of agree with you on that, I have to say. I just, when you speak about liquids and molds, I feel a bit sick. But you are throwing that away anyway. You're throwing so, that away. Yeah. Throw that away. Jess, are you on the same page? Oh, absolutely. But like I come from a farm in New Zealand in the middle of nowhere. Now, it's not like you would pop down to a shop like we didn't even have buses and taxis. So, you know, if you're hungry, it was worth the risk and you'd do it. You know, <laughs> so I'm 42. I'm alive. Just saying science. Um, yeah. So, you know, like, absolutely. I mean, it's like, you know, milk is like, smell it, you know, also smell it. Like milk is normally good after like two days past its use by date if it's been in the fridge, you know. Yeah. yeah. Same with yogurt. Like, it's just, you know, yourself, like use your cup on. <laughs> And these two are hardy. Essentially, if they open the fridge and it doesn't reach out and grab you by the collar, they'll eat it. Before I came here this morning, okay, I made myself a little cappuccino at home. And I'm not going (laughs) to lie, right? The expiration date on the milk was the 30th of November. It smelts totally fine. The milk was totally fine. Like It's the 6th of December. I'm just saying. Like, smell yeah. it. Honestly, mm. the milk is perfect. People are shaking their heads. No, can't, but like, can't. I grew up... Sour think, milk, I just can't, I can't do but that. it's not sour. I'm yeah, telling I, you I, it's I, not I sour. don't want to find out though. I don't want to smell the milk. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, I, I just you. don't. And it's yeah. early in the morning. <laughs> yeah. I get it. I'm just like, I'm just like, if you're hungry, you do it. Like... <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. So, maybe you so. know. Or you do without. Or you some pancakes. And if Holly has Claire recoiling, Jess is in another league. But she does draw the line at some things. Certain potatoes. Squishy, I think, is a whole other ball game. Squishy's different. But Squishy's, the Squishy's like, weird. If it feels like yourself, then don't eat it. <laughs> you know? Beautiful. God, we're good this morning. And if you were wondering just how to keep the kids occupied, designer and journalist Taryn Devere joined Sarah and Cormac with this. One of my favourite ones is to make goop. And make this what? is very simple. It's called, I call it goop. 
Goop. I don't know what a technical name is. Okay, I'll look up <laughs> but, the technical uh, name. What What is Goop? <laughs> goop is essentially just corn flour with a tiny bit of water. So what I would do with my kids is pour corn flour into a big tray and then add tiny bits of water and get them to um, smoosh it all in with their hands. And it has a wonderful texture. It's a very interesting, strange texture when you um, when you play with it. And kids absolutely love it. Oh, now, yes, I, brave, I, I, can... I know, Taryn, I know the technical name now. It's a mess. Yeah. Drive time on Wednesday. And all of this priming us for a conversation Ray had with Erica Fleming about a dish that, well, let's just say, if you were about to tuck into your breakfast... Steady yourself. We've spoken to Erica a good few times on the show um, uh, over the years, and, and you'll know her. She, she was uh, in emergency accommodation, and then eventually she got uh, her own place with her daughter Emily, and, and, and she studied at Trinity and all that sort of thing. She put up a tweet yesterday evening, um, and it was a picture of her fry up dinner in the midst of Storm Barra. Perfect comfort food, looked lovely. Couple of fried eggs, couple of sausages, some rashers. Lovely, lovely. But then, <laughs> there's this substance. That's all, the only way I can describe it, Erica, on one side of the plate. It's, it's a grey, beige, runny mixture of some type and it looks like sludge. It, it's, I, I don't want to upset people who may be eating, but it, it doesn't look appetising to me. No, it doesn't. It, when it's in the pot and you're cooking it, it doesn't even look appetising. Right. But it's the taste of it that is delicious. Right. And all of it is, is runny white pudding. Runny white pudding. Okay. Yeah. Oh, sweet mother. This would turn out to be granby pudding mixed with water. Ray wanted details. Do you spread it on a piece of bread? A piece of toast? Well, each to their own. So I don't yes. eat toast with it. I just cut the sausages up and the, the egg. And the egg has to be runny. So everything is just kind of in a mixture. Because right. it's all going into one hole. And then just shovel it in. Whereas <laughs> other people like to use toast and like kind of lap it up. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I said, my granny used to say it all goes down the wrong way. But you say exactly. it, it all goes in the one hole. It's a variation on the same theme. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> right. Now it would be inappropriate and unprofessional to editorialise too much. Which is why we have Twitter. One of the favourite words that people have used is scutters. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but and it does look like that, doesn't it? I can't disagree. I can't disagree with the people on Twitter. Yeah. And this is a Fleming family recipe. Did with me nanny. Right. Like I've been having this for 20 years. Okay. It was something that me nanny made and you always had white pudding, the runny white pudding with... <laughs> um, with turnover bread from Super Quinn. My brother cannot believe that I'm sharing the family secrets, the family <laughs> recipes. And my brother's wife won't allow him make it. Why not? Because it kind of has a smell that sticks to things in the house. <laughs> and obviously it doesn't look great either. So he only gets that at Christmas time when he goes over to my mother's. <laughs> You're really not selling it. You're really no, not selling it. No, I know. You have to taste it, though. And Erica's on a mission to get us all to taste it, even in the classroom. Miss McGee in Maisie and Chakar Secondary School is going to allow me to teach the children how to make it. <laughs> and how did that come about? <laughs> because I texted her and said it to her. <laughs> and do you teach there, or is that what? Oh, I'm teaching English and. Oh, are you? Yeah, oh, I am. It is. That's brilliant. Yes. 
and they're great kids and I, I love my students they're super yeah. <laughs> and I love doing it it's not, it, like your life has changed so much hasn't it in the last is it five four five, five, year, five, five years, years five yeah. years yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah definitely has yeah, yeah. the full circle and Ray ever the culinary adventurer vowed to try it but the next day uh, I bought the pudding but I didn't cook the pudding Jenny my wife was listening to it and she heard one particular thing which she quoted back to me when I walked into the house last night was when Erica said it sort of has a smell to it that sticks to things and uh, so that, that sort of ruled it out in our house. I'll have to get a, a moment over the weekend when there's nobody else in the house open up all the windows and try it. Mm-hmm. We'll be listening Darcy. Well that is it for this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.